Today our passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. We find ourselves in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. All of us can appreciate the warning labels that manufacturers place upon their products. I suspect that they are extremely helpful. But if you've ever stopped to read the warning labels, many of them strike you as painfully obvious. For example, on a box that was containing a clothes iron, you find this label, warning, do not iron while clothes are on body. What? Now that's pretty helpful. There was a, a box that was containing a hairdryer. And it said, warning, do not use while sleeping. How is that possible? My personal favorite came on the box of a baby stroller. And it said, and I quote, warning, please remove baby before folding stroller. <laughs> Darling, I can't get this thing folded. Oh, baby. When you and I come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we find a warning label of sorts. For some of you, it's going to sound obvious maybe even painfully obvious, but yet it's a declaration that needs to be proclaimed. This morning's warning label comes in three parts. Don't miss any of the three parts of the warning label. It is vital to our understanding of who we are in Christ. Paul begins our passage. As for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. The full force and weight of that statement cannot be felt unless we see it against the brilliant backdrop of the previous passage. 
In the previous passage, the one we talked about last week, Paul explodes in a glorious prayer unto the Lord. He is praying unto God, asking that the Lord would help the Ephesian believers to know the hope that we have in God and the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. And he prays that we may know the power, the same power that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that he exerts in your life and in mine. And then in response to that, the apostle just explodes in this glorious Christological picture of our Lord. He says that Jesus is far above everything and all things are under his feet. And in response to that glorious demonstration of how high and mighty the Lord, sovereign Christ is, Paul says in our passage, but as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Do you feel the stark contrast between the Lord who is exalted and very much alive and you and I who are slapped with this reality that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. When Paul says, as for you, that you is second person plural. He means y'all. He means all people, not just the congregation at Ephesus, but every person that's ever walked the planet. As for you, you were dead. That word dead means lifeless. It means without any human hope. And the reason you have no human hope is because of sin and transgressions. Sin and transgressions are uh, synonyms. They mean uh, defiant disobedience unto the Lord, raunchy rebellion before Christ. Because of our disobedience, we are stillborn before the Lord. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. It's not just that we're just kind of bad off. It's not just that we just kind of need a little fine-tuning. We are completely and utterly dead. We are selfish to the core. We are completely defiant unto the Lord. We have a craving for rebellion that we want to do our thing our way in our own time. We are completely and utterly selfish in sin. And because of that, we are stillborn dead before the Lord. Now, just to be honest with you, I don't know if everybody really believes what I just said. The reason is because, especially in our day, and it was true in any day, especially uh, even in the first century, uh, people don't like to think of themselves as sinners. Most people will admit, I'm not perfect. Then they'll quickly follow that up by saying, and you're not either. I mean, I'm not perfect, but neither are you. And then we begin to play that little game where we compare ourselves with other people. And we think to ourselves, well, certainly there are sinners in the world, some really bad ones. And when we think to ourselves, well, I work with some really sinful people. And I go to school with some really sinful people. I share the interstate with some really sinful people. I go to church with some really sinful people. Some of you may even say, I even live with some really sinful people. Can I get an amen? And then we even trick ourselves even further and we look at all the things, all the uh, news feed that comes across our phones and the things that we watch on television. And when we hear the stories of how just vicious people do vicious things and, and there, there's uh, crime and murder and violence and we think to ourselves, now those are some psychos. I mean, those are some crazy sinful people. I'm just glad I'm not like that. And we try to convince ourselves that while we're not perfect, we're not that bad. And yet the reality is that you and I are completely and utterly 
sinful. You get to verse 3, and the apostle lumps himself in with everybody else. He says, all of us lived that way at one time. We pursued the gratification of the cravings of our sinful nature. And by nature, we were objects of God's wrath. Because we are completely and utterly sinful, we put ourselves against the Lord. We are born, stillborn before the Lord. We are dead in our sins and we are enemies of God. We are objects of holy, justifiable wrath from God. I think part of the issue um, is that we don't fully understand the total depravity and sinfulness of our existence. We think that sin is um, something bad that we do or some good thing that we refrain from doing. We think to ourselves that there are different levels of sin and as long as, as we don't commit the really bad ones, then we'll be okay. But Paul says we have a nature that is sinful. We have a craving for disobedience. We, we have something that theologians call original sin. We inherited that from mom and dad. And before you get mad at them, they inherited it from Mima and Papa. And before you get mad at Mima and Papa, they inherited it from your great-grandparents. You can trace it all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because of their disobedience and their defiance, it kind of uh, sent uh, from one generation to the next, this craving for rebellion. And it never skips a generation. It affects all of us, totally, equally. This really came home to me when our daughter was born. And it's hard to believe that's nearly 15 years ago. I know that she doesn't look 15, and nor do we look like we should have a 15-year-old daughter. I know that. I understand. But regardless, here in a couple of months, we're going to have a 15-year-old daughter. And I can remember 15 years ago when Molly Grace was born, the very next day the nurse came into our room and, and we were excited and elated. I mean, this is the, the birth of our firstborn child. Everybody in the room was celebrating and throwing a party. The nurse walks in and she says, I wish that everybody felt this way and had this kind of celebration. And that took me aback. And I was shocked. And I said, well, why doesn't everybody have this kind of enthusiasm when a child is born? She proceeded to tell us the story that uh, yesterday a woman came in to give birth the very same day that Molly Grace was born. And this woman came to give birth and she never told her doctors and somehow the doctors never picked up on the fact that while this woman was pregnant, she was taking opium, which apparently is a pretty highly addictive drug. So the nurse said that little baby who's now just one day old is fighting for his life. He's craving a drug that will probably potentially kill him. You talk about deflating the air in the room. I thought, wow, that's horrible. I got to thinking about that. And it struck me. That little baby didn't do anything wrong, did he? He never voluntarily said, I want this drug to pulsate through my body. He, he never asked for this. He never rearranged his schedule so he could go meet a shady drug dealer by the dumpster in the dark back alley so he could get a fix. He, he never um, 
did anything to, to willingly take a hit or, or do what he wanted to do to rearrange his, his, his life so that he could just have that drug. And yet now, he had inherited the addiction of his mother. What she was addicted to, now he was addicted to. And he was fighting for his life. And he really didn't do anything wrong. And then it hit me. Such is the case of original sin. It's not necessarily that you did anything wrong. You were just born with this craving for rebellion. You were born with this addiction to sin. And if you leave it unchecked, it will keep you in a condemned state. It will pulsate through your body. It, it has already killed you. And if you don't do anything about it, it will leave you in that condition, eternally separated from God. And, and, and you may say, well, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I know you inherited it from your parents. And they got it from grandparents. And it goes all the way back. It's just a condemned state. Paul says all of us live this way, trying to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. And we were by nature objects of God's holy wrath. My friends, I want to give you a three-part warning label that is slapped on all of humanity. And here comes the first part, warning. You were dead in sin. You were dead in your sins. And I know that that sounds hopeless and helpless. I know it sounds bleak and terrible. But grace is on its way. The whole passage hinges on verse 4. Because of God's love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Jesus Christ. It is by grace that we have been saved. Grace is God's righteousness at Christ's expense. It is an unmerited, undeserving uh, favor that God bestows upon us. And if you ask me, why does God love us so much? I don't have a good answer. Because it's certainly not because we're smart enough or good enough or clever enough or creative enough. It's simply because he's great enough. I, I don't know why God has been so merciful to you. If you were to ask me, why has God graced us? I don't have a clue. I don't know why he has, but I just know that he has. As, as Paul writes, it's because of his love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. The first part of the warning label is that you we're dead in your sins. Here comes the second part. But God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. This is so good. This is the backbone of who we are as God's people. Everything about Christianity rises and falls upon this grace gift that the Lord has accomplished on our behalf at the cross of Calvary. And if you thought that was good, it's about to get gooder. And I know that gooder is not a real word, but I'm so excited this morning. I've just got to tell you, in verse 6, in verse 6, Paul says that God has raised us in Christ and seated us in the heavenlies in Christ. Now elsewhere, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, 
Christ died for the ungodly. So God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. And not only did he die in our place and accomplish our salvation, but he sealed our resurrection and our glorification all in the same event. Paul writes about how we are raised with Christ and seated with Christ, and he writes it in past tense, yet he's talking about a future event. Can I ask you, have any of y'all been raised from the dead yet? And the answer is no, because you're still living and breathing. At least I think you're still living and breathing out there, right? So we have not literally, physically, visibly been raised from the dead yet. And how many of you right now have already been seated in the heavenly realms well you're, you haven't expired yet so to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord so you're not quite fully present with the lord and seated right there in the heavenlies right not yet but paul speaks of it as if it's already happened how can he speak like this because he has a calm assurance he has a confidence that because of who God is, not the apostle, not the church, but because who God is, that you can take God at his word. A future event is so sure that it's going to happen, you can speak of it in past tense as if it's already occurred. I am resurrected with Christ. I am seated in the heavenlies with Christ. I have been graced by Christ. This is remarkable. And then all of this culminates in that great glorious verse where Paul says, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, not by works so that no one can boast. God has done this glorious thing where Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins he was raised on the third day. He ascended into the heavens. And by his actions, he confirmed and sealed the promise and the reality that as Jesus was raised, so all those in Christ will be raised. As Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, so all those in Christ will be seated in the heavenlies. This is why Philip Yancey said that grace is the last best word in the church. Can you think of a better word than grace? This is what caused Gordon MacDonald to write that grace can only be found in Christianity. You do know that every other world religion is set up in kind of a works-based um, confirmation. Now, you do more good than bad, then you'll be uh, permitted into paradise or uh, heaven. But it's only Christianity this says there's no way you can do enough good. There's no way you can be good enough to gain access into God's kingdom. The only way you're going to get in, the only shot you got is by grace. So grace is the one thing. It's the only thing that people can find only in Christianity. Just as the criminal on the cross could not lift his hand or foot unto his own salvation, so you and I, we cannot lift a hand or foot unto our own salvation. It is all by God's grace. In his sermon entitled Repentance, Gordon MacDonald uh, talks about this vision or this dream that he had. He said, one day I had a dream about uh, what God's forgiveness might look like. And, 
And I imagined myself standing on the shores of the Jordan River. I was there with all the crowd as they came to be baptized in the water by John the Baptist. And Gordon MacDonald says that as he looked out, there were a, a wide range of sinners in the crowd. There were also some type A personalities in the crowd. You know, they kind of wanted to streamline the process. Make it as easy and efficient as possible. So they got four tables, and behind those four tables, they put banners, and they wanted people to come up according to their last name and state not only their, their first name, but also uh, the sin that they had committed so they could log it down and write it down and, and kind of place it upon them. So Gordon McDonald says, I visualized there were four tables, and, and behind one was written A to G, and the other was H to M, the third was N to S, and the fourth was T to Z. And people would come up and they would register by name and register their worst sin they'd ever committed. Uh, first man walks up and the man behind the desk says, hello, sir, what is your name? He says, my name is Bob. Bob, what is the worst sin that you've ever committed? He said, well, uh, I used to be in accounting, um, but I, I stole a significant amount of money from the company. And I would think that's probably the, the worst thing that I've ever done. The man behind the desk said, I hear you, I understand. And so with a, a big name tag and a big pen, he wrote Bob Embezzler. And he put the name tag around the neck of that man and told him to wear it for the rest of the day. A second person came up to another table. Hello, what is your name? My name is Susan. Well, Susan, what is the worst sin that you've ever committed? Well, I talk a lot about a lot of people. I, uh, I spread a lot of rumors. If I don't know the facts, I just make them up. If somebody really makes me angry, then I'll speak about them in the hopes of destroying their reputation. I, I really kind of hurt a lot of people by the words that I've spoken. The man behind the table said, no worries, don't worry about that, I've got it. And on the name tag, he wrote, Susan, slanderer. And gave her the name tag to wear around her neck for the rest of the day. A third person walked up. Hello, my name is Dave. Dave, what is the worst sin that you've ever committed? Dave said, well, uh, it's the worst sin, and it's the most embarrassing. I've been unfaithful to my wife, and um, I, I can't tell you the effects of uh, broken marriages and broken homes. And I've, I've been unfaithful. The man behind the desk said, okay, I understand completely, and took a pen and said, Dave, adulterer, in real big letters put it on a sign, put it around his neck, told him to wear it for the rest of the day. Fourth person came up. Her name was Katie. Katie, what is the worst sin that you've ever committed? She said, oh, I'd rather not tell you. Oh, no, you have to tell me, but it's our little secret. Your sin, my secret. I won't tell anybody. Well, okay. I've got a problem with alcohol, and nobody knows it. I keep it covered up pretty well. I don't even think my husband knows. And oh, if my husband ever found out, he, he's a deacon in the church. 
He's a Sunday school teacher in the church. How embarrassing that would be if anybody ever found out. I can't even believe I'm telling you this, Katie said. And the man behind the desk said, Katie, don't you worry. Don't, don't worry one bit. Your secret is safe with me. And he took the piece of paper. Katie, alcoholic. So much for keeping the secret just between them. He took the sign, put it around her neck, and said, you wear it for the rest of the day. And then Gordon McDonald says that a fifth man showed up. This man uh, had no sin, and his name was Jesus. And Jesus bypassed all those tables. He went right to those people. And one by one, he took the sin and the identity of those people upon himself. It's almost as if he became Bob the embezzler. And, and he became Susan the slanderer, Dave the adulterer, Katie the alcoholic. And not only did he go to them, Gordon McDonald says, but he went to other sinners. He, he went up to Pam the liar, John the pervert. He, he went up to Stephanie the murderer. He also went up to Ben, the bully. He took all of their sinful identity, put it upon himself, and only one person that day went into the waters of baptism. And it was Jesus. And Gordon McDonald says, I'll never forget that Jesus walks in and he's baptized. And when he comes up out of the water, <laughs> all of those names and sins have been washed away. And on those cards are new names, forgiven. Adopted, loved, son of the king, daughter of God. And Jesus went one by one and he put these new placards upon people so that they would no longer be known by their sin, but they would be known by their savior. And Gordon MacDonald writes, whether it's at the beginning of his ministry or at the end of his ministry, Jesus identifies himself with sinners. At the beginning, he identifies himself through baptism. At the end, he identifies himself uh, by being our substitute on the cross. He dies so that we may live. And Gordon McDonald says, that's a beautiful picture of what grace and repentance looks like. Because what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all of my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is a warning label, my friends. It can be slapped on any person of God, any child of the Lord. The warning label, first and foremost, says, warning, you were dead in your sins. Secondly, but made alive in Christ Jesus. So then how do you respond to this grace? What, what do you do? Well, here comes the third part. Because Paul says that we are the children of God. It is by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. For we are God's craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. You want to hear the, the whole warning label in all three of its parts? 
Warning, you were dead in sin, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared in advance. It was John Stott who said good works are indispensable to salvation. Not as a means for salvation, but evidence of salvation. John MacArthur says something quite similar when he says, Good works do not produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. you got to keep this in its proper order. you got to understand it complete. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved to work. You've got to have all three of these parts of the warning label. You can't just have one to the neglect of the other two. You can't just have the middle without the first and last. And you can't just emphasize the third without fully knowing the first and second. The warning label must be seen in its totality. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance. So it seemed to me that you and I have been saved to serve. That service is a natural byproduct of salvation. In fact, it gives the evidence that we've been selected by God and we've been redeemed by Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the natural questions that come from this are, what ministry can I do and to whom do I minister? Well, let me try to answer both those questions. I'll answer the second one first and then I'll try to tackle the first question. The second question is, to whom do I minister? In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told a story that we call the Good Samaritan. And in that story, Jesus identifies your neighbor. Your neighbor is anyone who has a need that you're in a position to meet. Your neighbor has nothing to do with geography. It has nothing to do with proximity in the sense of what neighborhood you live in. But your neighbor is any person who has a need that you're in a position to meet. Elsewhere, uh, Jesus says that when it comes to this ministry, you know, uh, giving a cup of cold water, feeding the hungry, or clothing the naked, or taking care of the sick, or visiting those in prison, just ministry in general, when you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So to, to whom do we minister? It seems that the answer is anyone. I mean, the answer is uh, who's seated around you? Who lives in your same house? Who works at your same employment? It seems that who are we to minister to? It's anybody and everybody, regardless of color or class or condition or circumstance. We minister to anyone, everyone, anybody, everybody. Well, I'm glad we got that one out of the way, right? So we can minister to anyone, whoever's in front of you. That's who you minister to. That's who you serve today, tomorrow, next week. Whoever's right there around you, that's your ministry field. That's who you serve. Okay, so then the first question, what ministry am I supposed to do? Can I tell you that literally uh, there are thousands upon thousands of good work ministry that you can do and I can do. It's very hard to itemize this thing. In fact, I'll give you a few suggestions, but it is not exhaustive and, and as a list. Because I don't know if you can make it exhaustive, but this much I do know. When you wrestle with the Lord and when you ask him what he wants you to do, then when he gives you that answer, you can have the calm assurance that whatever he's called you to do, he prepared you for it in advance. And he prepared that work in advance. 
So you can go forward in great confidence that you're not just doing just whatever's available or whatever's right. No, you're doing something of cosmic significance because you're doing something that's been prepared in advance for you to do. I'm not just preaching because I don't know what else to do. Even though some would say, I don't know what else to do. But the reason I'm preaching is because God has prepared this in advance for me to do it. So I I go forward in confidence, not in my own ability, not in the things that I have learned, but because of who God is, that he set the agenda long before I ever existed. He chose me before the very foundation of the world, and he gave good works for me to do before the very foundation of the world. I'm just catching up to the Lord as he lays the path out for us. So the question is never, does God want me to do something? The question is, what is the something that God wants me to do? So what's the answer? What good work does he want you to do? I mean, maybe he's calling some of you to come alongside some of our grieving brothers and sisters. Do you know, over the last several months, we've had a significant number of our senior adults who have lost their spouse to death. That's that's an amazing season and chapter of life. And maybe God is calling some of you just to come alongside a grieving brother or come alongside a grieving sister and just minister to them. Maybe God is calling you. Um, Maybe he's put a good work in front of you, prepared in advance for you to do. And maybe that good work is just to to greet somebody on Sunday morning. Maybe it's to do it in a formal sense of, of being part of the greeter ministry team. Or maybe it's just an informal sense that you just go up and just share a kind word with somebody. Anybody that you see in the hallway, maybe, um, maybe the good work that God is putting before you is that God has prepared you to teach a small group in our children's ministry or our student ministry or our adult ministry. Yeah, maybe it's Sunday school. Maybe it's uh, in the nursery. Maybe it's across the street in the annex. Maybe it's a, a small group discipleship. Maybe it's something in your home that God is calling you to. Maybe he's put around you a lot of uh, people who are not believers yet and you just want to reach out to them and invite them in your home and you say, hey, what can we go through? How can we minister to them? Oh, maybe that is the good work that God's prepared in advance for you to do. Maybe God's raising up some of you to help us on the sound team or to be in the choir. Maybe it's something that is outside these four walls. Maybe it's something that is a ministry in downtown Birmingham. Maybe it's something like Save a Life just right down the street. Maybe God is raising you up and preparing you for the good work that he prepared in advance for you to do in a short-term mission trip. Maybe he wants you to go to Peru or Tanzania or perhaps the Middle East. Maybe he wants you to go to Denham Springs, Louisiana later this summer. Maybe God wants you to go to New Orleans. What does God want you to do? Where does he want you to take the gospel? What good work has he prepared in advance for you to do? My friend, this really revolutionizes the way we think when we realize that God has prepared these good things for us to do. And he prepared it long before we ever showed up. Because this is the way our God works. So Paul slaps a warning label. It may be obvious to many of you. It may be painfully obvious. It may be like you're, you're reading a box and you're like, duh, hello. Who doesn't know this? But apparently people don't know it. So let me say it one more time. Warning, you 
were dead in your sins. But God has made you alive in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance. Now you get to go fulfill that. That's the label that's been slapped on you and me by God himself. Now we have the joy of fulfilling that label to a watching world, a world desperately in need of Christ. My friends, you got to have all three parts. Don't take one to the neglect of two others. So the invitation this morning is quite simple. It's twofold. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, today I invite you to accept the grace gift. Once again, John R. W. Stott, who says the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. If I'm going to give you a gift, you've got to receive it. How do you receive this gift of salvation? By faith. You receive it by faith and you trust Jesus and you turn from your sinful ways and Jesus raises you to life in Christ. Oh, my friend, if you're here today and if you're not a believer, please, will you take seriously the claims of Christ? This is Jesus calling out to you. He invites you to come. And when we sing, I want you to just make your way down this aisle, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need this Jesus. You articulate it however you can articulate it. And you just express to us your need for Jesus. And we'll have a little conversation. And I promise you that a sweet transaction can take place right here, right now, right in this very spot. Where you give Jesus your sin and he gives you his salvation. Oh, that's called grace. So that's the first part. The second part of the invitation is this. If you are a believer, then what are you doing with your salvation? If you are a believer, what are you doing with your salvation? And if you haven't thought about what you're doing yet, then you're probably not doing enough. Okay? So, we're going to extend the invitation. And I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, what am I doing with this salvation? Christianity is one of those religions where um, you come and see and then you go and tell. You come and see that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And in light of that, you go and tell. And some of us just like to sit and soak instead of stand to serve. So today's invitation is twofold. If you're not a believer, please come. Accept the grace of God. If you are a believer, then what are you doing with your salvation? Remember, warning, you were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared in advance. Heavenly Father, we have tried to be as clear as we possibly can. So Lord, we pray that your word will go forth and accomplish what you set forth to it accomplish. Where there are people who do not know you as Savior and Lord, today I pray will be the day of their salvation. For those of us who have been walking with you for weeks, months, or years, help us to really think about what are the good works that you've prepared in advance for us to do, and then help us to go forth boldly, confidently, and do them. Lord, may your church be mobile today. Let us go and tell the good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.